Good morning, Christ Central. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13 from the ESV. And it reads, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Josh Kim. I am an assistant pastor, I promise, not a new person that came today. Uh, We're glad you could join us if you're new and joining us for the first time that look like I am right now. You could please stop by our visitor's table to pick up our welcome back on your way out. I tried to give uh, Pastor Brown the bag this morning. He refused. Uh, We're glad you could join us. And uh, again, before we delve in, just want to say welcome back. The Brown family, we're glad you're back with us. And a lot of you said, wow, it's been six months already. And I told them I've been counting down the days. Um, It's like you could ask my wife, and I've been thinking, like, when is this day coming? So there is nobody, I would dare say, that is more excited than I am to have Pastor Brown back in the pulpit. Um, I, I am very excited for him to preach and for me to go back to my old role in many ways. So when we say Pastor Brown's not going to preach for a while, there's a reason behind that. I signed up for that as well because we acknowledge that it, it's, there's a lot more to the role than just being a preacher on Sunday. And for the past six months, I had a privilege of filling in, not by myself, obviously, with all the staff and all of you. We have done this together. But I've seen a glimpse of all that goes on behind the scenes, not only preparing a sermon, but all the emails, all the things that the Brown family will uh, come in contact with trying to get back to. Uh, that's why we're slowing things down with them and uh, enjoying them as a family joining us. So we're going to do this continuously together. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we're going to begin today a five-week sermon series called This is Christ Central. 
highlighting and revisiting our mission statement and the vision statement that we have for the church. And some of you have heard this as Pastor Brown preached on this time to time in the past. For some of you that are joining us or joined us this past year or past couple years, this is the first time you get to hear a sermon preached on a vision statement of Christ Central Church. And with the pandemic and the post-pandemic, not to mention the post-sabbatical now for us, it is crucial for us as a church, we felt, to revisit what God has called our church to be and to do in this place, in this part of the world. And you will hear the Pastor Brown's sermon reference time to time throughout this sermon series, and we invite you to listen to them as we think about what does it mean for you to be part of our church together as we grow to be a body of Christ. And before we go into that, I have to, I think I definitely have to mention what a great game it was, wasn't it? I know, right? What a great game. And I'm talking about Charlotte versus Duke, right? Woohoo, right? Charlotte, University of North Carolina, Charlotte versus Duke, as they were going in for the score, first victory against the, the big five or the, the top five of power conference, right? Are we Charlotte, North Carolina, not Clemson, Georgia, right? What a great game that was. How about UCLA fans here, right? Oh, yeah, UCLA, right? Beating uh, LSU, perennial power. What a great game. Texas is back, as they say. They say that every year, right? (laughs) North Carolina. I mean, uh, Virginia Tech Hokies, right? Woohoo! Hokies won the game. And fine, you know, the Clemson, I mean, Georgia Bulldogs. Wow, what a great game that was. For some of you, not for everybody. For some, it didn't even begin yet. If you're an FSU fan or Notre Dame fan, it's tonight, right? If you are not a college football fan, it has not even begun. (laughs) It's next week for a lot of you. For every Saturday, there is a college football game that gets played throughout our nation. Each school with a different style, in a different way, and different outcomes that happen, different players that play, different scores get put up, different parts celebrate, different parts are depressed. Very similar in some sense, I would say, to churches. Every Sunday, in every different corner, not just our nation, but around the world, each different in its own local expression, as they would say. And all of you, as you may not all cheer for the same college program, all have a different experiences that you have come from if you've been going to church uh, part of your life, all of your life. Whether it's a denominational difference, theological difference, cultural difference maybe, we all have experiences of a church in some way and somewhat. And just like because of a different expressions exist in a local college football program, we find that not every church bears the same resemblance. Not to mention the challenges of COVID-19 pandemic, the restrictions, the mask. Some choose not to, some chooses to. Add to that some of you are hurt by the church in the past. I have talked to many this past year about the pain of the church the abuse that you felt in a church. Or some of you were really excited about the local church that you're part of and all the blessings and all the challenges that you received from the previous church. And you would say, this is what the church had to look like. And we often wonder, why doesn't this church 
does not look like that particular church that you were part of before. And some of you wrapped around in all that have this question of, will this church hurt me or will this church help me? Not only for me, but also for my family and for my friend that I brought today. Can I bring him back next week? Would he want to come back next week? And just like all the football teams that differ across the nation, we must acknowledge that church and its local expression can differ vastly. Not only in comparison to Charlotte, North Carolina, in comparison to the church around the world today, but even in our own city, even in our neighborhood, one church can look vastly different than the other. But one thing that we could all agree upon is how game is played. Right? If you turn to a football game on Saturday, no matter what uniform they have on, no matter how they play, what kind of style of offense or defense, no matter how rowdy the fans can they be, we all know there's a found, basic foundation that all football games follow in general. There is a football, and the point is to score more points than the other team, something that Clemson failed to do. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I had to mention that once. Um, but just like in a church, we all may differ in some sense, in some way or the other. And we'll get a, into a particular call for the church in a little bit. Please come back. I know all of you are like turning out right now. Come back, Clemson fans. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God, right? There are different ways that we may look on the outside. But at the foundational core of what it means to be a church, we all need to agree and look to the scripture as a foundation of them all. So before we begin looking at our particular vision statement that God has called this church to be, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 to look at the basic foundation, the building blocks of what church ought to be. What Apostle Paul says church must be built upon. And at an initial glance, as you might be wondering, 1 Corinthians 13, and you may wonder, isn't that a wedding chapter? Some of you may wonder, wait, that was my wedding, right? Someone preached on that from my wedding, and that is fine. I'm not saying that's wrong in that by any means, but if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 is actually not a love chapter about a husband and wife. It's actually a chapter reorienting a church that is in trouble, a church that is divided church that is fighting in the midst of that, this beautiful, beautiful chapter comes about, and Paul is writing to remind this church what they're supposed to be, at the foundation, at the root of what a church ought to be built upon. The church is scripture's definition, the answer to the question of what is a church, and that centers on the theme of love. Three things we'll look at The first thing we look at is that everything minus love is nothing. The second thing is nothing plus love is everything. And finally, Christ's love is everlasting. Christ's love is everlasting. First thing we look at is everything minus love is nothing. This is a quote by Andre Agassi, one of the gifted, talented tennis players in the 90s. It says, I play tennis for a living even though I hate tennis. I hate it with the dark and secret passion and always have. 
Here is a man who seemingly had it all. He was deemed the greatest service returner of all time. He won Olympic gold, grand slams, endorsements, endorsements. Popular media gushed over all that he did, not only the wedding to Brooks Hills, one of the most quote-unquote desirable women at the time, his personal charm, the looks, he seems to have it all. Number one ranked player in the world. And he said, in the midst of it all, I hate tennis. He seemed to have everything because of tennis, but without love for it. He's saying he had nothing at all. One of the misnomers I often hear when talking about the health of a church is people often say, we need to go back to the first century church. We need to go back to the heart of first century church. And I tell them, have you read the scripture? Have you looked at that? I love the evangelistic zeal of the first century church, but do you realize Paul's writing to these churches, what John says about seven churches in Revelation, and especially in our text today, 1 Corinthians 1, chapters 1 through 12, a letter to Corinth, what is Paul telling the church here? We often forget that Scripture calls people to do certain things because they don't do it, right? Paul's telling the church to love because there's no love. It's not like we tell our kids to eat if they're already eating. Go to sleep if they're sleeping, right? The Paul, when he says love, there's no love in the church. Therefore, chapter 13, if you read through chapter 1 through 12, you realize, man, the church is in trouble. And you don't even have to read it. Just look at the English headings the English Bible translations have put in there for you. And if you look at it real quickly, it says in chapter 1, right away, after Paul says, greetings, divisions in the church, chapter 1. <laughs> chapter 3, divisions in the church. Chapter 5, sexual immorality defiles the church. Chapter 9, food offered to idols. A theological controversy, it seems to happen in chapter 8. And actually, chapter 8. In chapter 9, now we get into Paul's credentials that are in question. Is he fit to be an apostle, right? In chapter 10, warning against idolatry. And some of you may say, that's not a church. Let's move out, right? That's exactly what normal person would think, thinking about divisions in the church, sexual immorality in the church, food offered to idols, credentials of a pastor, warning against idolatry. If there's any church like this, it's in the news today. And in the last chapter 12, right before we get to chapter 13, we see now different groups in the church fighting and saying, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I know more than you. I have this gift more than you. Hey, you have that gift? Let me tell you about the gift that I got, that God has given me. And there's a fight that happens again over and over and over and over again. In the midst of all this, this is what Paul writes in chapter 13 to show the church at Corinth, almost to say, hey, church, listen. Hey, church, focus. Listen to what I'm saying. And this is what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and listen all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, church, when Paul is talking about gifts and how gifted one is, there's no one, perhaps in the history of church, that is more gifted than Paul himself. In chapter 14, 18, we see that Paul possesses the gift of tongue, 
but way more than that. He says in 1418, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Right? He speaks more. He simply says that himself. I'm better, right? <laughs> what about prophecy? Right? Can you imagine? Hey, let me write a letter to you. It's going to be a scripture down the line, right? Whatever Paul writes or spoke became a scripture. So do you think he has given the prophecy? Way more than any of you could possibly imagine. Last time I checked, none of the things you said became a scripture, right? <laughs> he does. Uh, Paul even talks about the vision of the heaven, the third heaven, that none of us have a glimpse of looking at. So here, when Paul is exaggerating the terms of the gift of the church of Corinth to create and want, he's saying, basically, you could desire all that. You could have all that. And he's saying, I have all that. I have experienced all that. But he says, if there's no love in that, you're nothing. I am nothing. We are nothing. Paul again says, if you do all these things but do not have love, you're nothing but a noisy gong. According to one historian, Corinth was famous for production of brass. They had proprietary technique for making brass and was a leader in this industry. So Paul is using the everyday illustrations to say, hey, if you have no love as a church of Christ, the bride of Christ, you're no better and the noisy gong that you hear every day as you walk by on the market streets that no one pays attention to and listens to, no matter how expert you are in this area. In church, I think here we must pause and remember and ask ourselves, what do we hang ourselves on as a church of Christ? What do we look for What do we stand for? And you know, it may not be the spiritual gifts at the church as a Corinth struggle with. But often, how often have we struggled with thinking we are better? Right? Who is better? What programs do we have that's better? What focus or vision that we have that may be better? Sometimes it could even be an idolatry of theology, saying we got this down. Don't you not understand? We could, exeg- um, we could preach exegesis on this text much better than anyone else. For some, and for our church in particular, even multi-ethnicity could be an idol that we thrive upon and say, look at us, we're better. But what Scripture challenges us today is this. At the foundation of what it means to be a church is the pursuit of love. It's not how much you know. It's not how much you do. It's not what ministry that you're part of, what you do, what kind of worship services, what songs. It's not the pastor. It's not the program. It's not of any of these things the church must place their hope in. All important things by all means. But at the core, the foundation of a church today ought to be these two questions that Jesus reminds us. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do you love your neighbors just like that? Starting with someone sitting right next to you. Is that the heart of the church? Do you notice something about this text? Paul is not surprised that there is division in the chorus in the church. Some of us, when we walk into church, we get so surprised when there's a division and quarreling in the church, and we say, that's not a church. 
let's move away, right? But Paul is like, all right, there's a division. What's new, right? You are all sinners. What's new? He writes to them and says, all right, I get it. He also is no way trying to create this monoculture, saying you all fit into this thing I'm trying to say. He goes to the ends of the earth, known world at the time, to different cultures, different people, planting churches. He encounters, understood, and all the differences out there. But you know what he's surprised by as he's writing this letter? That there's no love in the church. For Christians who follow Christ, as we say, the ultimate sacrifice of love demonstrated on the cross for sinners, no love in the church was was what surprised Paul of of them all. Christ-centered church, may our basic foundation, as we go into the vision and mission statement, at the foundation, at the root of it all, may we be marked by the love of Christ. Amen? Second thing that we see from this text is that nothing plus the love of Christ means everything. Nothing plus love of Christ means everything. In my early, 30, uh, in, in my early 20s, actually, I had a chance to go on a young adult mission trip to Senegal, a West African country. And um, we had this one week of a prayer retreat where we were going to the remote villages that took hours and hours to drive to go and to meet all these different people. And as I was traveling hours and hours in this country to go to these remote villages where church has never gone into before, one truth came to my mind as a missionary reminded me time and time again. They say you could go to anywhere in the world today and you'll find two things, Chinese restaurant and Korean missionaries. It's true. You could go to anywhere in the world today, you'll find Chinese restaurant and Korean missionaries. Try that. Next time you go visit somewhere around exotic places, look for Chinese restaurants and Korean missionaries. You will find them because we found them in Senegal in the most remote parts. I was so surprised that we ate Chinese food on this trip in the most remote parts. And we met Korean missionaries everywhere we went to. And I remember particularly this one missionary that was serving the Senegalese town in the middle of nowhere where I, there's a lot of wisdom in kind of being connected and whatnot. So apart from that, I'm not trying to make this person into a hero, but there is something about this. Anyway, this person was a missionary in this Senegalese village where nobody was present. No church was present. Nothing was present. And he had absolutely nothing in common with anybody. Language was foreign. Some spoke French, but most of them spoke local dialect. None of them looked like him. None of them ate anything remotely close. No idea what this Christianity was all about. And he stayed there. And all he did was stay and loved people. Loved people and loved people. And slowly, people came around. Though he may have nothing, but he had Christ's love resigning and that was attractive for the locals. That's what we see in verse 4, don't we not? It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you notice in the description of love, you see that love takes on a personified form. 
Love is active here. It is described in verbs and not adjectives. Why? Because love is not merely a concept, but it is an action, as we see in this text. Let's unpack this a little bit more. What love is and what love is not. Eight ways that love is not. It says, does not envy or boast, not arrogant, not rude, not insist on its own way, not irritable or resentful, and does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And what is this list about? It is not random, actually. Rather, this is what the church of Corinth was doing. And Paul is saying, that's not love. What you're doing is not love. Paul talked about envy in chapter 3. Paul talks about boasting in chapter 4. Paul talks about arrogance in chapter 8. The intent of Paul in writing this letter is to be a mirror to show this church to say, the list of the what love is not is what you are doing right now. What you are doing is not what you're called to be doing. He's saying this is not love. This is not what church ought to reflect in this world today. And he goes on to say, let me show you what you ought to reflect to the world today. And seven active verbs of what love is. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient, love is kind. And there's much you can say, but just the words enough describes what love is. And here is something we often forget. And I do want to highlight, it says, love is kind. In a day and age where we often focus on our own rights, my own gain, my own desires, my own freedom, here's the countercultural message of kindness. In fact, the Greek word for kindness is krestos. Doesn't this sound a lot like Christos? Right? The Greek word for Christ. Paul here is playing to the wordplay and says, love is like kindness as love is Christ. And it's not about do this thing so you can be a Christian. You know what this list exemplifies? You know what this word describes? is Christ. Right? Not only is Jesus a mirror that shows you and I who we really are, but when we see our hearts in light of the true love he displays upon the cross, how can you not be but humbled by this great love? And what Paul's telling the church at Corinth is, this is what Christians are all about. That's what Christ's followers are all about. Not perfect lovers, flawed, but perfectly loved by our great Savior People first overcome by his love. That's what Paul tells us of his experience, that he was Jesus' hater at one point, but Jesus loved him. As he states in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because he loved us. That's what John tells us in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. And the most famous of them all, John chapter 3, verse 16, he sent his son to die so that you and I could place our trust in him and can be in eternity with our God. Though we were nothing, Scripture tells us, when we experience his overwhelming love, we can in turn respond and be like Christ and love him and love others. And when we love radically like this, that's when others will see that we are Christ followers. 
that they will see Christ more clearly. Our goal, church, our vision is not to hammer people with the theology. Our goal is not to get this culture correctly all the time. It's not to be that church that does all the right things. Our goal is to be overwhelmed, overcome by love of Christ so much so that we cannot help but to love others. You know, one pastor told me during this pandemic, he said, although I cannot see my church, this, especially when we were in lockdown, he says, although I cannot see my church during this lockdown physically, I can see them ever so clearly spiritually. He said he cannot see his church physically, but he could see his church so clearly spiritually. What he meant was what once defined church in the eyes of the culture at the time was taken away. Things we often took for granted, children's ministry, nursery, all these things that we often used or wanted to be part of. But what we have left during the pandemic was just who we are in our own homes without the help of others in many ways. And we realize who we worship, what we prioritize, what we do on Sunday, really reflected of who we really were, gave us eyes to see perhaps what's really defining church for us. You know, the question for us as we think about this love chapter and the call for us to love like this, the question for us is, how long does it take, do you think, it takes for you and I to be like Christ in this love? Right? The question is, when will the church finally get to this and look like this? Right? And you may be wondering, even thinking, well, our church, Christ Central Church, got a long way to go, right? And I would say, you're absolutely right, right? We may be in like step one or step thousand. We got a room full of struggling people here today. Count me in as one of them. I'm the worst of them all, as they would say. But the hope that I find in the local church and church like ours is this. Church at the foundation of the church is full of people trying to grow in this together. It's differently, uniquely, in its struggles and failures, in its flaws. And for those who do not know Christ, should be mixed in with us as we are doing the right thing. We got to have those who are checking out the church together and flaws in our puddles of tears as we wrestle together in the body of Christ. You know, one truth I do absolutely love about the first century church is that Paul, John, and Jesus especially seems to be okay with the infighting, the failures, the struggles in the church. Did you just hear that? It seems to be God is not surprised again by the infighting, the failures, the struggles. We are. We make scandals out of it. And we are absolutely terrified by it. Our God is not. Our God is much bigger than this. And what we see consistently time and time again is the call to wrestle in this together. Offended, yes. Hurt, yes. But wrestling and committed together because Christ's love unites them all. One thing that I love about our particular church is that I have absolutely nothing in common with all of you. Right? Hear me out for a little bit. Not that there's nothing absolutely common, but 
It's rare as an Asian American person that I feel catered to in the rooms that I walk into. Oftentimes, I'm pushed to the side, even marginalized. Sometimes, can I be honest, even in my own church. And I'm an assistant pastor here at that. And you know what? I think that's something that many of you feel as I talk and meet with many of you. And sometimes not to the extent that I may feel as in few Asian Americans here, but some of you, in some way or not, feel like just like that. Often marginalized, not heard, pushed to the limits. And if you feel like that, I'm like, that's great. And you're like, what do you mean that's great? First of all, that means you're able to relate to those who are minoritized among us. To listen to be able to relate. Have you listened to, not, I'm not saying this because Kelly's here, but the podcast that uh, AAM put out, a discussion, the conversation that happens in the pews by African Americans in PCA. I encourage you to listen to them. What an eye-opening, heartwarming, encouraging, amazing stories from our African American brothers and sisters in the pews. I think our church understands what it means to have those hearts in the midst. And I also think it's encouraging for us because when we do not feel like we're catered to in our church, perhaps we're doing something correct. We all should at least feel like that if we're not catering to one group or the other. Because if you're catering to one group, one group is not going to feel catered to. We all, as a body of Christ, should think of others as we say. And when we do not feel like things are being catered to us, That does not mean, look at me, cater to me. Rather, it should be, great, I get it. I feel the pain and the suffering. Let's do this together. Let's wrestle in this together. Hey, I'm not saying we got all this together. We are still wrestling in that. I'm not saying stay in the feeling of being not heard. Please listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying I love it not because you're not being heard. It pains me. But we're all in this together. And we're going to do this together as the Church of Christ. Again, not because we're great, but because Christ's love ought to hold us together, not we as a church is doing to make it better. Right? Do you believe that church? Do you want to be part of that kind of church where we are united by Christ's love, not by the things that we say or do? That's the building block of Church of Christ. And real quickly, the final thing that we'll see is that not only is Christ's love reminds us that's everything for us, but we realize the reason why this has to be the foundational block for us is because Christ's love is everlasting. And here is the final thing that Paul says. Pursue this foundational block of love in your church because it's so worth it. Christ's love is everlasting, they say. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will see. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. But now we see in mirror dimly, but then face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul here gets to the point. He talks about the temporarily and partial nature of the gifts. He's saying that rather than pursuing this temporary means, pursue what will be everlasting, 
that is love that never ends. And in subsequent verses, he gives two illustrations to make the case. He talks about the growth, the picture of the growth of maturity from childhood to adulthood. Paul urges church to grow in maturity as the day is coming when we all leave childish ways behind. And he talks about clarity. The second picture talks about the mirror. Mirror in the ancient Near East is not like the mirror that we use today. The mirror was often made from the hammered out metal, and they gave a distorted reflection at best. That's why he says, now you see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face with our Savior and our true self. The true clarity will show us. In fact, his love is the reason why we are loved, not our gifts. And church, I love this about what Paul's writing. Because as much as Paul rebukes the church, he paints for them Christ's unending love for them. Do you realize this? He says, you are flawed, but look at this amazing love of Christ that could overcome that. You are divided, but look at this amazing love that demonstrated upon the cross for you. You are measuring yourself by one another, but look at this amazing love of Christ that overcame it all. I was Christ-hater, but this love overwhelmed me, and now I'm a Christ apostle. I am different than you are, but we're all united by the love of Christ that brings us as a picture of what it means to be a bride of Christ. Not perfect, but someone that God absolutely loves. He continues to preach, continues to speak into this church that's broken. You know what happens to Corinth after Paul writes this beautiful beautiful explanation and the foundation of the church, right? I don't know about you, but I'm expecting a great revival, right? The church to be like, okay, no more. Okay, let's not fight anymore. Let's love one another. This is going to be the greatest church on earth. People will see that we are united by love. I'm not going to talk about this and this and this. We are going to be the light that shines in the darkness. We could overcome. We all are heard, loved, and cared for. But guess what happens? After 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians happens. And this is what Paul writes. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I pained? And I wrote as I did so that I, came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. And with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Chapter 2, verse 10. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humbled when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I present, I'm in prison, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Right? Isn't that awesome? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I thought to have been com- commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of the true apostles are performed amongst you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty words. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. First Corinthians, uh, no, Second Corinthians chapter 13. Parallel, perhaps. This is the third time 
I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others that I warned them now why absent as I did when present on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is seeking in me, speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives in the, by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Church, that's the picture of a current church. Not only so, the New Testament does not give us any further information about the church, but Clement of Rome, one of the early church fathers, wrote a letter to them, as we see in the church history, probably near the end of the first century, almost 50 years after Paul's time ministering there, and he had to deal with the, some of the same issues we find in the letter. And over the year, the city of Corinth began to decline in size and influence. There's evidence of a continuing Christian presence in Corinth for centuries. But how biblical it was at any point in time is difficult to ascertain, they say. Church, if anyone had the reason to give up on a church, it was Apostle Paul. Did you read what he said? And if there's anyone in the history that has reason to give up, not just in the church at Corinth, but any church, it's Christ himself. Do you think when he looks at the church today, this is what he wanted? <laughs> Let alone our church. I'm not talking about just churches out there, but us too. Do we really reflect that? Is this type of church that Christ will say, this is my bride whom I love? And the answer to that is surprisingly absolutely yes. Isn't that crazy? That even the failures of a church. Even the failures of those closest to Christ, the disciples while he was walking on earth, even the woman that did not expect the resurrection in Mark 16 was not surprising to Christ. And as he visits our church this morning, he will not be surprised at that. Why? Because you're in it. I'm in it. We are prone to wander, prone to leave God we love, as the famous hymn states, church is you and I, broken, tattered, hopeless, apart from Christ. But here, our God does not give up. This is what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, despite its division in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to powers that work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Church of Philippi, despite its persecution, therefore my brothers whom I love, I long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And even the church in Revelation, seven churches, they get rebuked at times. The repeated line at the end of every line, in Revelation 2, 7, 11, 17, 28, chapters 3, 6, 13, 12, this is what Apostle John writes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Despite the continual failures of a church, Jesus does not give up on the church. That means Jesus will never give up on us. 
Not because you and I are all so great and doing all these great things, but his covenantal love, his promise towards us is that he will do it. He will carry on to completion. He will complete the work that he began in you, and the church of Christ will be used as a vehicle to spread love of Christ despite our failures so that we may all point to our God and say, he did it, not us. That's what it means to be a church. And he's coming back soon. And we ought to continue to testify in our brokenness. Not in how well we are in our brokenness to the Savior that is coming. As we close, oftentimes preachers, as they close, they think, try to think about an illustration that wraps it all, right? So you remember that? Um, so I was racking my brain. Okay, what can I say? The people will remember this. And Dr. Peacock is here. I had a privilege of talking to her this week. And uh, she asked me what text I'm preaching on. I said, 1 Corinthians 13. I was so excited. And I was telling her all these things I'm going to do. And I'm sure Pastor Bowen would acknowledge this too. And we all learned it from her book. She simply said, Josh, have you just sat and listened? And I was like, oh, oh man. And you know, when your spiritual elder says, listen, <laughs> sit there, uh, you do it, right? So she simply sat me down and said, you're a doer. Be somebody that God wants you to be. And she said, won't you listen to the words? And lovingly, she said, won't you read this for your people? And again, if she says that, you do it, right? And it's coming from message version that she read for me. And I was overwhelmed, not only by the words from Dr. Peacock, but the words that God spoke to our church. Can I invite you? You can close your eyes if you are. We don't have words, uh, the words up here, but the message is a translation done by Pastor Eugene Peterson. And he has a beautiful way of writing this. And as you close, perhaps you want to, it's up to you. You could close your eyes and nod. Picture this with me. Let's dream about this. This is what our church should be founded upon, no matter what. This is a foundation block. No matter what background, what belief, what conviction. This is what the scripture says we ought to be reflected upon. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love. I am nothing. If I give up everything, if I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of the others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of the truth. Puts up with anything. Trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. 
Praying in tongue will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete comes, our incompletes will be canceled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like an infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears, sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for now, until that completeness, we have three things to do lead us towards the consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly. Love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Imagine that church with me. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer. That despite our brokenness, our failures, the times we feel not heard and loved and cared for, even by those close to us, as broken as we are, may this church reflect the love of Christ. May we be people overwhelmed by the love as we pursue after you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.